Oh, Brunetto, we hardly got to know you before we've passed on. You ran away like a winner, like something across the sands. And we've moved on, except not to a new ring of hell. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk passage by passage through Dante's masterwork comedy. And we are in the 16th canto of Inferno. We're at the opening lines of this canto. I'm going to say something about where we are in this canto after I read you the passage. And then this is a packed bit, the first 27 lines of the 16th canto. So let's just get to it. Among the violent, specifically the homosexuals. At this point, I was in a spot where I could hear the thrum of the water that fell into the next circle, like the hum that beehives make. When three shades altogether peeled off at a run from a company that was passing by under that rain of acrid torture, they came toward us, each of them shouting out, Hey, yo, stop! Your clothes don't fool us! You must be from our unprincipled city! Oh my! The open sores I saw all over their bodies, old and new wounds, seared into them by the flames. It hurts me still just to remember them. My teacher held back at their cries, then turned to face me and said, Now hold on. These are worthy of courtesy. And if it weren't for the fire that's part of the very nature of this place, I would say that haste is more your problem than theirs. As we came to a stop, the three started again their old lines. When they got up to us, all three had fashioned themselves into a single wheel, as oiled and naked athletes are taught to do, that is, to look out for their grappling holds and attack positions before they set in with lunges and punches. So they turned round and round, each one keeping his face diverted back to me so that their necks turned back in a contrary direction to how their feet were going. Let's stop with the introduction of these three, what in the commentary is so often called the noble Florentines. They're not. We'll talk about that in the next episode of this podcast. But so often called the three noble Florentines who peel off here. We haven't dropped a level. We haven't hardly moved a bit. We've moved a little bit on down that riverbank, but we're still on those burning sands. We're still amongst the violent, even those sands that Capaneus was stretched on way back long ago. This is a curious passage, so let's get started with some overview of the passage and the canto itself. This, the 16th canto of Inferno, is an often forgotten canto. Here's why. The ending of this canto is dramatic. We're not there yet. We're just in the first opening 27 lines. But the ending of this canto eats up all available space. When we get to the end, we're going to find out various things. We're going to find out, for example, that Dante has a cord around his waist. We're going to find out that that cord was supposed to catch one of those beasts back in Canto 1. We're about to drop over a waterfall and a major division of hell. And at the end of the 16th canto, this will be the first time Dante names the 
work he is writing, comedy. All of that happens right at the end of the 16th canto, and because it's all backed up back there, references to the first canto, to the opening bits of Inferno, naming this book a major division of hell, because all that happens, nobody pays much attention to the first bits of this canto. I think Canto 16, however, is an incredibly difficult canto. And in fact, here's fair warning. We're going to slow down in Canto 16, and we're going to take this in smaller chunks. Why? Because it's connected directly to Canto 15. There are ways that this Canto 16 mirrors what happened with Brunetto Latini. So we want to watch how 16 and 15 mirror each other, and we want to pay close attention to that because the poet has set it up for us to see it too. This is a politically difficult Canto. We're going to have to get a little bit into the weeds about Florentine politics to get through this Canto and to make sense of it. And three, this is a poetically challenging canto. Politics and poetics are going to become thorny and thick and difficult inside this canto, so we might as well go slow. And let's first talk for just a minute about Dante's notion of politics. I want to start by reading you something by Susan Noakes. She teaches at the University of Minnesota. She's a dantista there. And I want to read you something about her mm, succinct, (laughs) something by her that is a succinct and beautiful discussion of politics for Dante. And it's particularly about this canto. This is in a canto by canto uh, commentary on Inferno. And Susan Noakes wrote the bit on the 16th canto. And this just bears saying to you directly. So let me read you her words. In Canto 16, Dante reflects yet again on the history of Florentine politics and makes a step toward answering the question and thus consoling the questioner, what went wrong with my city, my home, which I loved and served to the best of my ability? His answer arises from consideration of two topics that concerned him throughout his adult life. First, the effort to discover the natural model of human community. And let me just tell you, she puts the word natural in italics so you see it. It's very important to know this because this is Dante's concern, the natural model of human community, the way that people should organize themselves on earth so as to live in closest conformity with God's plan. This is reading on from Noakes. And then second, the role of rhetoric in serving human community, which is to say the role of language in politics. From the beginning, reading on from Noakes, the canto is thoroughly political, although it may not appear to be so from the viewpoint of a 20th century concept of what politics is. For Dante, politics is not essentially a struggle between parties, classes, or nations. He understood politics fundamentally as Aristotle had described it in the Ethics and Politics, an art of moving organizing, and motivating groups of people to understand and collaboratively seek their own highest good rather than some distracting and thus ultimately destructive lesser good. Just want to underline that one more time. Politics, the art of moving, organizing, and motivating groups of people to understand and collaboratively seek their own highest good. That is what's at stake in this canto as we meet these three who come up like oiled wrestlers and confront our pilgrim. It's not in this passage, but it's going to come up again and again in this canto, and we want to just let it settle. Politics is about how to get people to work together for the greatest good. How exactly do you do that? You do it 
Let's go back to Brunetto, Latini, by finding the right rhetoric, the right words. Words are able to bind people together to seek their best good. Let's turn to the words of Canto 16. The opening three lines. At this point, I was in a spot where I could hear the thrum of the water that fell into the next circle, like the hum that beehives make. Remember, they're walking down this small little embankment with this stream that's coming out of the wood of the suicides, and all of this water is collecting. We've had discussions of the hydraulics of hell, and here it's weighing in on us because we start to hear a waterfall far in the distance, like the hum that beehives make. I want to make a couple points about this. One, we are looking far ahead in the narrative. This waterfall where the water goes over the cliff is way ahead of us at this point. Yes, we have looked ahead before in Inferno. For example, when we came right out of the gate of hell and amongst the neutrals or the people who couldn't decide who were being stung by the wasps and were following that flag around in the darkness. Remember that? Way back up near the top? Okay, fair enough. That was, uh, we saw them, we heard them, we heard they're screaming. We heard the buzz of the insects before we finally settled into who they were. But who they were were only a few lines ahead of us. What is happening here is we are getting a narrative hint of something in the landscape that is far ahead of us, way out yet ahead of us, this waterfall. it's We kind of go through a lot of inferno and a lot of naughty interpretive problems before we ever get to this waterfall. This seems to indicate to us that the narrative is expanding out in front of itself. That is, the poet is starting to see things down the line or farther ahead. Yes, we saw towers across sticks from each other. But again, we got out onto sticks pretty quickly, and we didn't have this sense now that we have of a kind of landscape itself of narrative. That's one thing. Two, notice that it's water flowing, water flowing over a cliff. You know, you can read this allegorically, for much happens in this canto, and there are many ways to go over a cliff and many ways to flow along. For example, trusting politics leads you over a cliff, but trusting poetics brings you safely on. Let me just say that one more time. And I'm telling you the canto before we're finished with the canto, but this is our thesis statement. Trusting politics leads you over a cliff, but trusting poetics brings you safely on. That is is going to become fundamental to how we understand this very difficult and often overlooked canto. This is a great admission for Dante, the political figure. Remember, Dante was part of the ruling political class of Florence. And for him to reach a point where, in fact, political rhetoric and the hope of politics leads you potentially over a cliff as it were, as you flow along. Mm, for him to admit that is a giant turn to trusting poetics, not politics, as the fundamental movement of the poem that he's writing. That's a lot to say, probably way too much to say to you at this moment, but you just need to hold it in your head because it's going to become incredibly important for Canto 16 and for Canto 17 that lies yet out ahead of us. So let's pass on down into the Canto itself. 
You notice those first three lines were just about this waterfall, and then suddenly, as if we kind of heard that, we turn to the main meat at hand. It's as if those three lines are kind of set up there as a bracket. Here's what's way ahead, and then we get a kind of near view. Three shades, they peeled off at a run from the company passing by under the rain of acrid torture, and they came toward us, each of them shouting out, hey, you stop, your clothes don't fool us, you must be from our unprincipled city. Remember, Brunetto says that there are coming souls that he can't join with. Remember, he starts to run off. Well, he does run off at the end of the 15th canto because he says, people are coming that I'm not allowed to be with. Well, here they are. And we're going to have to talk a lot about why Brunetto Latini is not allowed to be amongst these three. We're going to have to save that for a bit for this next episode coming up on the podcast. But just remember in the back of your head, Brunetto anticipated them coming and said, I can't be with these. Why? It's a plot point. Maybe they don't get along. Maybe they're on. Maybe they, you know, are not so friendly with each other. But there's got to be a symbolic and interpretive point underneath it. We want to talk about that, but we're going to have to hold that. I mean, just note that these are they. And notice that these guys who run up notice that they they pay attention to Dante's clothing. It's his clothes that attract their attention. He's, you know, they're like saying, "Hey, we recognize what you're wearing. You're from." I Paris. <laughs> you're in Hermes. I don't know. You're from Paris. We know exactly where you're from because of your clothes. I think that's really important to note that the clothes attract their attention because clothing is exteriority. It's a covering. It's something that goes over you. Covering is going to become important later in this canto. It's going to come up about trying to be covered. They notice that they pay attention to his covering. And you know what else is a covering? Rhetoric. Rhetoric is a way to cover politics. It's a way to cover what you want to really say. It can obscure as much as it can reveal or join together. And remember, the Canto 15 about Brunetto is so much about rhetoric, how to establish your fame, how to find yourself in a rhetorical context and use rhetoric to get what you want. And here, suddenly, we have them interested in the covering, the clothes, that's how I know you, by your clothes, your exteriority. We might even say by your rhetoric, by your language, by what you wear. Notice, too, that the poet at this point steps out of the text. The text goes on, oh my, the open source I saw all over their bodies, old and new, seared into them by the flames. It hurts me still just to remember them. That bit, it hurts me still just to remember them, is from the poet. That's the poet at his desk writing, right? That's the guy remembering. That's the guy sitting there constructing this poem saying, oh man, I can still see those open burning wounds on the bodies of these three guys. Isn't it interesting that they notice his exteriority, they notice his clothes, and he then, the poet, steps out from behind the text and reveals himself in a sentence to us. It hurts me still just to remember them. There's a way in which the text is covering the poet, rhetoric is covering what's going on, there's a whole kind of revealing and covering that's going on here, and it's going to get more intense as we move through this canto. Let's move on to the next lines. My teacher held back at their cries, so they screamed, you know, hey, hang, hang loose, stop up there. We can tell by the way you're dressed, you're from our unprincipled or depraved city. So Virgil hangs back. He turns around to face the pilgrim, and he says, now hold on. 
These are worthy of courtesy. Corteza. That is a loaded word in the Middle Ages. Courtesy is not just, thank you, please, you go first, I go first. No, 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 we're not talking about that. We're back to the world of Francesca and Paolo. We're back to the world of courtly manners and courtesy. And part of courtesy is knowing your place in the pecking order. That's the definition of courtesy, particularly in a medieval context. That is, I know my betters, and I know how to treat them as my betters. And I also know those below me, and I know how to treat them. And it's not smacking them around by the way, despite what Game of Thrones might teach you. Instead, it involves how to extend your hand down toward them. Courtesy is the fundamental medieval virtue of civic society, and that Virgil would bring it up now, courtesy, inside this canto in which we're about to meet these Florentine leaders. It's all working toward a certain conclusion. Also, courtesy is linked back to Brunetto. Because remember Brunetto and his big history lesson about the noble Romans done in by those savage Fiasolans, those deplorables for up in the hills? Well, here are some modern Florentines, and they don't seem to be half-breeds. They seem to require courtesy, and we will see they are indeed very noble and very courteous. So Virgil goes on and says, and if it weren't for the fire that's part of the very nature of this place, I would say that haste is more your problem than theirs. That's a pretty direct translation of the medieval Florentine. It's not actually very elegant. And I think that Anthony Esselin has a better translation or gives you more of the sense. And let me read you his translation of those three lines. What he, what he says, Virgil says, Esselin says, Virgil says is and if this place nature sent no flame arrowing down i'd say it was less fit that they should run to you than you should run to them that's closer to the spirit of this thing what what virgil is doing is underscoring the nobility the need for courtesy that is you know listen we're in a bad place fire's raining down but if fire weren't raining down it would be more fitting for you to make haste to get to them than them to get haste uh, make haste to get to you virgil's really laying it on thick about what kind of nobility these figures demand. And in fact, what we're going to discover, not in this episode of the podcast, but in the next episode of the podcast, we're going to find that these are the most noble figures we will ever meet in hell. But first, let's take a look at them. As they came to a stop, the three started again, their olden lines. And the word here in the Florentine is verso. You could translate it song. You could translate it, um, uh, I don't know, lyrics. But the important thing, verso, is that it has a poetic import. They start at the end with their old songs, their old poetry. In fact, this whole canto is going to turn on poetry and we first start to see it with these three as they come up and they start their old lines and there's three of them right and what is comedy written in terzerima three line segments and here comes three of them forming a wheel that wheels around how does comedy rhyme dante's book rhyme oh the first and 
third line of each three-line set, and then the middle line of the next set, and then the first and third line of that three-line set with the middle line of the next set wheeling into each other. They're wheeling around kind of like comedy itself. When they got up to us, the text goes on, all three had fashioned themselves into a single wheel. Now, this gets very strange. We have a kind of metamorphosis idea here. I mean, they don't turn into a wheel, but they, they the three of them start circling round and round as oiled and naked athletes are taught to do. That is, to look out for their grappling holds and attack positions before they set in with lunges and punches. So they turned round and round, each one keeping his face diverted back to me so that their necks turned back in a contrary direction to how their feet were going. So they form this circle and they start rotating. And as they rotate, of course, in order to see the pilgrim, they have to keep turning their head back. You have to start looking back and back and craning your neck around to see him. Remember, they have to keep moving. We established this with Brunetta Latini. If you don't keep moving, you get stuck on the sand and stretched out and burned alive or burned to death. Well, you're already dead, so I guess you can't be burned to death. But you certainly get burned up, stretched out on the sand if you ever stop. So they're trying not to stop. Two things here. One, you can see this as very homoerotic, oiled and naked athletes following each other around. But there is a twist on this homoeroticism in the passage if you see it there. And let me say that nobody really saw it there until the modern world. There's a twist on it, and that is that they're not looking at each other. They're looking at the pilgrim. More, I think it's important to say, that how's this, that they're facing a different way from the way their feet are going. Their heads are turned back as they rotate around this circle to see the pilgrim, and so their feet are going one way, but they're looking back another way. This is what's important. You have to pay attention to this because this indicates that they're thinking not in the way that they're going. And this is going to prove important to their final condemnation. That is, their eyes are fixed on one thing, another Florentine, the pilgrim, but their feet are headed in a different direction. Now, you could claim that this is also kind of related to homosexuality. That is, that, you know, an unnatural turn of the head, that your feet are headed in a certain way. Again, this think about this in a very heteronormative context, that everyone is straight, as you would think in the Middle Ages. Everyone is straight, and yet their heads are turned around backwards on their bodies. You can think about it that way. More important, just think about it in terms of their moral outlook. They're not looking ahead, they're looking back, or they're twisted around so that they don't see the direction they're going. Or more importantly, they're not paying attention necessarily to the direction they're going. In fact, they're walking in each other's footsteps. In fact, they're following a path around and around the circle that each one of them has already trod. In other words, they're trotting in, how do I say this? They're trotting in. No, they're treading in. <laughs> wow, I'm getting excited. They're treading in already trodden footsteps. That says something about their politics, that they are walking in a way that each one of them has already walked. And in order to do this, they have to then turn their head back around to see another Florentine. See, it's not as easy as you might think. There's a lot in the commentary about how noble these guys are. And Virgil's light lays it on thick. You know, they are deserving of cortesa, of courtesy, the prime courtly value of the Middle Ages. That thing that Francesca and Paolo practice, that kind of courtly royal manner system that holds feudal society together. Great. These guys 
their heads are turned backwards and they're in a circle. And are they going anywhere? No, they're just walking round and round in each other's footsteps. No forward momentum. If you don't hear the criticism about Florentine politics, I'm not doing it right. No forward momentum, turned around backwards, and we got to wait for the next episode of the podcast while you're with Dante before we meet them. So subscribe, like this podcast. I could use a few ratings. Hey, drop down there to the bottom of that Apple page, write a review. <laughs> I will thank you forever. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I am so excited to be back doing Walking with Dante, and I am so excited to be in the 16th Canto of Inferno because I think this canto is one that is so easily overlooked. I overlooked it for years. The more I played with it, the more I realized this thing is unbelievably complicated. So come back. Next time, we'll meet these three guys, boiled and naked, walking in each other's footsteps, round and around in a circle like a wheel, on the next episode of Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.